All right, biohackers, who doesn't love a yummy, creamy whey protein shake? Oh, it is such a treat. And I really love it as a meal replacement, post-workout recovery, maybe even a midday snack. So this is why I have to tell you about Puri Protein Powder. I absolutely love the bourbon vanilla flavor and the chocolate, but I think I got to go with the, the vanilla as my favorite. So it's smooth, it's delicious. And you know what else? It's pretty awesome that the flavors come from real natural ingredients like the bourbon vanilla seeds from Madagascar. And let's talk about quality because there's a lot of junk whey protein on the market that I would not recommend. So the Puree whey protein, it comes from pasture-raised cow's milk with no hormones, no GMOs, and no pesticides. This is because Puree's mission has always been to be the best at offering pure, clean, and superior products that, that support health and well-being. And what I think truly sets them apart is that they are fully transparent with their product testing. Every batch is third-party tested against more than 200 contaminants and certified clean by the Clean Label Projects. Not all brands can say this. Plus, each product contains a QR code so you can personally scan it and review the test results at home. I know you're excited to try it out. So what you're going to do is head on over to puri.com slash biohackerbabes. That's P-U-O-R-I.com slash biohackerbabes. And then make sure you use promo code biohackerbabes at checkout to save 20%. All right, let's get back to the show. Inflammation is a biologic, physiologic necessity, right? We we need it. It's, it's how we respond to infections, how we respond to injuries. You can't just make inflammation go away. And just like fire, right? Like if it's out of control, it's devastating. Hey there, welcome to the Biohacker Babes podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Renee, a certified nutritional consultant with a master's degree in nutrition. What's up? And I'm Lauren, functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner and Czech movement specialist. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life. Our mission is to provide actionable steps so you can optimize your health, strengthen your intuition, and support your body's natural healing abilities. Because life is too short to not feel your best every single day. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Welcome to episode 207 of the Biohacker Babes. My name is Renee and I'm here with my co-host and sister and fellow babe, Lauren, across the country. Hi, Lauren. I thought you were going to pause. I'm going to be... Lauren. <laughs> Lauren. Hi. Hello. I'm here. I'm in New York. Good to see you. It's a black and white theme today. Why am I? Oh, I'm, I can't ever not comment on the clothing. <laughs> it's like the new weather. Instead of talking about the weather, we talk about what we're wearing. That is our weather. Clothing. Clothing weather. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. We have a guest coming on for you today, Dr. Josh Levitt. And oh, this was a fun one. And we talked so much off air too, because I he I just connected with him. He's just an awesome guy. Awesome guy. That is the word of the episode. Awesome. You will see at the end. But mm -hmm. before we jump into what we're going to talk about, pop quiz, Lauren. Da -da -da. What do you think is the coolest anti-inflammatory ingredient? Ooh, like the hip the hippest compound on the block. The hippest. Oh my <laughs> gosh. And it doesn't I, have to be something we talked about. Oh, ooh, hmm. I've always just been a huge fan of fish oil. I feel like it's maybe even underrated and definitely under supplemented with, I suppose. But 
specific to the podcast, I'm probably going to say bromelaine just because I, I have a kind of a connection with that there. And for our audience, you'll hear I have a quick story about it, but I used to use it endlessly when I was performing and um, it became quite popular. So um always enjoyed that one. So it was fun to learn a little bit more. What's your favorite? Yeah. I maybe I kind of wish I had asked him about this, but we ran out of time. But BPC 157. Oh, maybe as, man. Yeah. yeah. You know, like as like the hippest one on the market, because everyone's talking about it and there's different ways to use it right orally and you can also mm-hmm. inject it locally. So, oh, Dr. Josh, we'll have to ask you later what your opinion on that is. But I would say that's my coolest one for the moment. Body All right. protective compound. <laughs> <laughs> like your, cool. your superhero voice has to come out when you say it. Uh, how else do you say BPC? <laughs> yeah. BPC. 157. All right. So you can maybe guess we're going to be talking a little bit about inflammation, but a lot about pain too. And really Dr. Josh's awesome uh, approach to medicine. So he is a naturopathic physician and he is willing to use whatever medicine his patients need. He will look at the best of both worlds. He will pull from herbs, from diet, whatever they need to help the patient. And I just really, really appreciate his approach. So um, we also get into some practical tips of what you can do if you feel like you do have excessive inflammation in the body, but also if you have like chronic pain and you're not able to get answers, he breaks it down into different categories of things you might want to look at when trying to figure out what's going on. Um, And I will just say surprising what he said about MRIs and diagnostic scans. So if you've had an MRI and you have a herniated disc, wait and hear what he says about this. I thought this was really interesting. So stay tuned for that. What a teaser, Renee. Uh-huh. Yeah, he does. He does drop a lot of nuggets. I just think the conversation around inflammation is just so essential because a lot of us have been conditioned to think that inflammation is a bad thing. It is such a critical part of our immune system and the way that our body responds for healing. And I had a little flashback while we were chatting. I didn't share this on air, but when I was at Mama Mia, my friends, AJ and Deanna, and I all had this little tune <sighs> that we'd, we would sing about inflammation. If we got injured or had an ache and a pain, we would go, do inflammation team. Wait. And I just had another flashback. I've shared that with you before on the podcast, haven't I? I think like season one, probably Ugh. four years ago. Here, yeah. It's back. It's, it's back. back. But we used to celebrate inflammation, right? Because acute inflammation is a really, really good thing. It's a superpower. We just don't want chronic inflammation. So we do get into that. So I think that's really interesting. So if you're kind of curious around, wait, how could inflammation actually be a good thing? We're going to do it today. Yeah. So tell us more about Dr. Levitt. All right. Dr. Josh Levitt is a naturopathic physician with a degree in physiology from UCLA, a doctorate in naturopathic medicine from Bastyr University, residence training in integrative medicine, over 10 years of precepting medical residents from the Yale School of Medicine, and over 20 years of direct clinical experience with thousands of patients. He has helped thousands of patients with natural solutions to common, chronic, and complex medical problems. His primary focus is on painful orthopedic and musculoskeletal conditions and helping people understand and treat their pain at the source. As such, Natural, integrative, nutritional, and herbal treatments for inflammation, muscle tension, biomechanics, and posture, and mind-body medicine for pain management are core talking points. Dr. Levitt is also the co-founder and medical director at Up Wellness, which is an eight-figure company where he created a line of premium natural products that work. Awesome. Word of the day. Let's jump in. 
Welcome, Dr. Josh Lovett to the Biohacker Babes. Thanks for joining us today. It is my pleasure. This is fun. I hope that we can uh, have a good conversation that inspires people out there today. I know you got a lot of listeners and um, I'm looking forward to hanging out with them. Yeah, we already had so much fun before we hit record, so we're still like, continuing. yeah, in the, <laughs> yeah, in the green room, right? The green room, in the green room. room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can already feel the energy coming through the camera, so this is going to be a good one. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Yeah, well, we're excited to have you on. I mean, you have some amazing experience. You've been working with patients for over twenty years, and Lauren and I have heard you speak on you know multiple platforms, and we're just really impressed by your approach. Uh, I would say you kind of like take the best of all the different medicines available and say like, what's going to work best for this patient, right? It's not going to be the same thing for everyone. And you're doing a lot with very like chronic common health issues and a lot with like the pain and musculoskeletal conditions, which I don't know, this is kind of ironic timing. Just in the past week, I've had three friends tell me they're having like debilitating back pain like out of Mm. nowhere. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like perfect timing. So we're definitely going to get into like the pain and inflammation piece and what's going on there. But I think just to start with the basics, because you are a naturopathic doctor, we've had a few on the podcast, but we've never really explained like what that is and what that approach to medicine looks like. So maybe you can kick us off there. What is naturopathic medicine? Yeah. And I I have to put a caveat before I answer it because I I can answer what naturopathic medicine is to me, right? In the same way that every patient is different, right? Every naturopathic doctor is somewhat different too. We all go through somewhat similar training and, and, and my route um, and you said that I try to make the best of both worlds or use the best of both worlds. It's totally true. So like uh, just a very quick history here. Like I am a naturopathic doctor who got his interest in all this, lit the fire, so to speak, on the day that I like desperately needed antibiotics. Um, and it, otherwise I was I was maybe going to lose my leg. So the, the short story there is like I was a pre-medical student at UCLA studying neurophysiology and getting a lot of like discouragement from conventional doctors about medicine, right? The conventional medical route was like, turning into like this insurance dominated pharma dominated medical industrial complex that just like wasn't as awesome as it used to be for these older doctors that my dad at UCLA at the time was introducing me to. And so I took a year off, traveled around the world. And during that time I got cellulitis, which is a terrible infection. You know, I was like, living out of a backpack and sleeping on beaches, that sort of thing. And so I got infect- an infected blister on my toe and it was like a terrible raging cellulitis infection that was crawling up my calf. I was in Switzerland at the time and I, I wound up getting a, a prescription for antibiotics called into the Swiss pharmacy. And in there, I took the antibiotics. It was Keflex, which cured the infection. That was great. Um, but in a Swiss pharmacy, very different than a United States pharmacy, there's like all herbal stuff, nutritional stuff, homeopathic medicines. And so here I am like needing like the orange bottle, you know, with the white cap, the antibiotics, but then also getting exposed to this whole new thing that was just so intriguing to me at the time. And so that is like, it, it's kind of a funny irony, you know, that like, Uh, And it it carries through to this day that like antibiotics are sometimes necessary, like the case that I had and many cases I've seen since, but lots of times those other natural medicines, herbal, nutritional, and otherwise can be very, very useful. And so, yeah, it's been 25 years since then, at least, and maybe more, maybe closer to 30. And um, that is still the passion. That's still where I'm at. And so that's really what naturopathic medicine is to me is like using the best medicine for that person at that time. It's really not that alternative. I don't think. Mm, Yeah. Very cool. I I have two questions. I'm going to tell you the second question first. Um, No, I'm going to tell you the first question first, because it's just distracting (laughs) me. 
you said naturopathic and I've heard that a million times. Renee and I more easily rolls off the tongue naturopathic because I thought it was yeah. based on, is this a tomato tomato argument or is there really a correct way? <laughs> that is so funny that you ask. I've actually never been asked that. I've been on a lot of different podcasts and, and stuff and it's great. Like this is the first time I've ever really been asked that question in a public forum. Um, there was a meeting back in the late 1980s, early 1990s of the powers that be in naturopathic medicine, which is the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians, which was a young uh, organization at the time. And they've debated this question. And the answer that they came up with is the way that I say it with the hard A, naturopathic. Um, and so that's the way I continue to say it because I had mentors in the field that were like older doctors, senior doctors that taught me the way, so to speak. Um, and if I may, can I just like throw in like a little bit of like uh, political or kind of cultural um, information ar around this question? Oh, yeah, because then Go no one it. will ever forget the answer. Yeah. So <laughs> so I say naturopathic and I, I, I talked about the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians, which is the sort of uh, the governing body nationally. Um, and that's where doctors like myself who've graduated from accredited universities like Bastyr University in Seattle. Uh, there's a several other ones in, in, throughout the country that people can look up um, who pass a board certification ex exam and are licensed by their, their various states. So in the United States, I don't know the exact numbers, but there's only about half of the states that recognize the kind of license that I have as a naturopathic doctor. I'm in Connecticut right now and my state happens to be one of them. And that's why I have a license that's from the Department of Public Health. And I have, I, we can take insurance at my office, you know, all, all the regular stuff, doctor stuff, you know, um, there are other states, including one right next to me, which is New York, that do not recognize the license of a naturopathic doctor, no matter what. And what that means is that those letters after my name, I use the credential ND, naturopathic doctor. So those letters mean nothing to the, anybody in the in politics in the state of New York. It's meaningless. And that means that anybody can use those letters. It's just, it's doesn't mean anything. There's no there's no governing board, there's no body that regulates the practice. And so there you have a problem, right? You have naturopathic doctors that have gone through the rigorous training that I went through, and then you have other people who call themselves naturopaths, often they use the soft A, naturopaths or naturopathic doctors who are well-meaning, often well-educated, but just different, right? They're differently regulated, they're differently trained and educated, and it is it's a PR problem. What can I say? I mean, you know, so anyway, um, a lot of the people that yeah. say the naturopath with a hard A are trained in the way that I was. And um, anyway, I don't want to get too much into it. We could use a whole hour of our time. We have other That's more important things to talk about, but it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, way to catch someone in a lie. If they say naturopathic, I'm like, oh, heard you. Where'd you go to school? Where'd you go to school? You want to, yeah. you want to hear the joke? I mean, this is, this is so bad. I shouldn't even say this, but the, there, there is a, there's a little, there's a little joke, like the behind the scenes joke of us, you know, us like ivory tower, you know, we were trained the good way naturopathic doctors with the hard a, um, they, the other, the other types. And again, well-intentioned, you know, often do great, great work too. Um, but they use the same letters and D after their names in these so-called unlicensed States. So we call them undies undies instead of Ooh, undies. Low. <laughs> I, I know it's brutal. I shouldn't have said it. <laughs> no, that's no. Now I'm just going to remember. It. Yeah. No, yeah. but I love this. It's just a little jab, topic. you know? Yeah. That is fair. You worked really hard. I understand that you want to keep that in your realm. So totally fair. Uh, so I'm assuming the naturopathic is based off of the healing powers of nature, which are really, really important. But you also mentioned that antibiotics sometimes are 
also beneficial. So I assume as a naturopathic doctor, we have to use like an insane amount of critical thinking. And I think there's also a higher hierarchy of interventions. Can you explain Mm -hmm. that? And what really is your approach? Because there could inevitably be a million different ways to help a patient. Totally. Yeah. These are great questions. So there is indeed a hierarchy of interventions. We call it a hierarchy of therapeutics. It sounds so fancy, kind of like a ladder, a stepwise approach. And and let me give you a metaphor. I love metaphors. I think they work well for educating both patients and listeners and everybody. So here's the metaphor. Um, let's say that there's a fly buzzing around in your kitchen. Okay. And it's buzzing around. That's our problem. We have a problem. And the problem is that there's a fly. So there are a bunch of different options here available to us that are, that are solutions, right? Treatment plans, if you will. So I'm like, kind of like a peace loving kind of, kind of gentle human. And so my first approach is to try to get the fly out, like by opening the door or the window and see if I could get it out. Right. That's one approach. And it's like, it's reasonably effective. It's pretty gentle. Um, There's some risks, like another fly could come in or something, but that's like a low rung therapy. Right. Then up from there, it's a metaphor too. I sometimes do swat flies, but like the, so the, the next rung up from that might be to swing at it with a newspaper or a fly swatter. Right a little bit more of an invasive or toxic, if you will, intervention, certainly to the fly. Then up from there, we could get Raid or some of these chemicals and spray it around the kitchen. That's an increasing level of power and effectiveness, right? But also leaves side effects because you don't want that stuff all in your kitchen. And then up from there, we could pull out like a blowtorch, right? And just torch the place. It'd be very effective, but very toxic. And so like the idea there is that I just described a hierarchy, like a ladder, a stepwise approach. And In my world with a patient, I look at the problem. It's usually not a fly in the kitchen, but some kind of medical problem. And then look at the array of options that are available to me and try to pick the lowest one that meets the patient where they are, that will accomplish the desired result with the least amount of force and the least amount of toxicity. And then just pick from there. And sometimes it means taking step one, that didn't work, take step two, up from there, you know? Uh, And that's the way I think of the hierarchy of therapeutics in naturopathic medicine. And yeah, surgery, antibiotics, they're all on there. They're all up there on those higher rungs. And sometimes to get to reach those hard spots up there, you need to get up on the high rungs. I mean, that's just a reality. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Makes sense. I got to tell you though, like, you know, as I'm thinking about it, there's been many times in my career where I've encountered people, people who have very serious medical problems who are unwilling to go up on those higher rungs, right? They just absolutely won't. Like they have extreme dogma. No way Mm -hmm. am I taking antibiotics. No way am I getting surgery. No way am I doing that. And I've seen, I mean, we don't need to get into it, but I've seen tragic outcomes as a result of that kind of dogma many times in my career. And that's really reinforced the idea that, yeah, sometimes you need to get on the upper rungs. It's not worth losing your life over uh, usually. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And actually our dad has been a biological dentist for over 40 years and, and I've heard similar stories from him. Like his patients are very, very holistic, biological medicine focused, and they might have like, you know, an an abscess, abscess. And they're like, Mm. I don't want to do antibiotics, but even our dad might be like, okay, maybe antibiotics right now. Cause it's literally going to save your life. And then let's get the tooth out. Let's clean it out. Let's look at, you know, the rest of the body and the immune system. But is it really worth like losing your life over one round of antibiotics? Right. So yeah, I think we have I, to meet in the middle there. Totally. I totally agree. And we, 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 you mentioned musculoskeletal pain. This happens all the time with surgery. People don't want surgery. They don't want a joint replaced, you know, and it's totally, this is the thing that's crazy about this, right? That like, I talk about this all the time that there's, there's 
hundreds of thousands of unnecessary surgeries that are done every year in the United States. Like, it's just amazing. It's a massive problem. Like, it's a tragedy that orthopedic surgeons replace joints that don't need to be replaced or do arthroscopic surgery on people. Um, and we can talk more in detail about that, but it's a, it's a huge problem. And when I talk about unnecessary surgeries, there's like voices out there on both sides of the equation. One vo set of voices is like, yeah, doc, unnecessary surgery, you know, Western medicine is bad. They just want the money, you know, all that kind of stuff right that 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 side and then other people are like are you kidding me my knee surgery my hip replacement whatever is the best thing i ever did in my life like i couldn't play tennis now i can i couldn't walk now i can and what i'm trying to say is both of those things can be true there can be very unnecessary surgeries done you know at massive levels really a problem and surgery can be totally awesome it can be both of those things and and it turns out that they both are true mm. yeah are you a Libra? <laughs> I love this. No, I'm a Virgo. That's a good <laughs> I'm a Virgo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm a Libra. And yeah, that, that definitely is like how I think about everything. And I'm yeah, actually, um, I'm one of those cases where when I was 13, my orthopedic surgeon wanted to fuse my spine. Hmm. And um, cause I had uh, two uh, stress fractures and three herniated discs. And I didn't go that route, but I had to do a lot of work like chiropractic and acupuncture, massage, PT, nutrition, like you name it. I had to do all the things. And I think I'm a success story from that angle. But yeah, there's other people that have done the surgery and are so happy. So right. And, love and that approach. It, it brings up another thing too, which is like the disparity in America, right? Like a lot of those other things that you just talked about cost money, right? And like aren't covered by insurance. And so there's lots of people out there yeah. that are like, I want to do all the natural whatever, right? The chiropractic, the acupuncture, the PT, the all this sort of stuff, but it's not covered and the surgery is. And so like, what, what, what am I left with? Right. Like that's, you know, I mean, now we're getting into like healthcare in America, you know, it's a whole, it's a thing. <laughs> that's a really good point. I actually didn't, ironically, I didn't really think about that, but I guess, yeah, I had the luxury of, you know, our parents could pay for the alternative stuff. Cause yeah, none of that back then, especially 25 years ago, wasn't covered by insurance. Right. So, right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Grateful. And that's a, grateful. Yeah. <laughs> How much of the unnecessary surgeries do you think are due to that? People just choosing that because it's the slightly easier or accessible option versus Gosh, they can give us some reasons why, other reasons why that would happen. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I do think that there are some people who have been, who don't even know that the, well, listen, I think the vast majority of these unnecessary surgeries are happening to people that do not know um, or just are simply not aware that there's another option, right? And and mm -hmm. the reason why is because, and you want to talk about that now? I mean, we, we, we may as well get into it, right? We're here. Let's do it. Yeah. yeah so, the you you mentioned a few people that have had back pain right and you yourself even had herniated discs so let let's talk about that because that's like the um well it's the number one reason for visits to orthopedic doctors maybe even family care doctors um in the united states back pain's a massive problem and the usual routine is that somebody has back pain and then if it doesn't go away or if it's not getting better in a timely fashion which it usually does they'll then get imaging right they'll get x-rays and or an mri and very often that mri will show something and that something is usually a herniated disc right um or a bulging disc and so when a when a patient has pain and has a bulging disc there's this obvious logic trap that people fall into which is that the pain must be caused by the abnormality we saw in the MRI, right? It just makes sense. Like, oh, you have pain. Look at that. We found a bulging disc in your back. 
those two things must be connected to each other, right? The the bulging disc must right. be the cause of the pain, which then leads to a whole bunch of interventions, right? Like we can do a steroid shot, we can do uh, surgery, right? Usually a microdiscectomy or a laminectomy or and or a fusion. And here's the problem with that is that if you look at MRIs of people who do not have back pain, and this has been done many times, we have lots and lots of data on this. Let's take 40-year-olds, right? People who are between 40 and 50. 40% of 40-year-olds who have no back pain have disc herniations on their MRI. 50-year-olds, 50%. 60-year-olds, 60%, and so on. I'm going to reiterate that. These are people who do not have pain. They also have, they have disc herniations. So there's massive amounts of the population who have asymptomatic backs. They feel good but they have disc herniations. And so all of a sudden, if you become a person who has pain for whatever reason, and you are one of those people who has a disc that's bulging, all of a sudden your disc is the reason for your pain. And it's just not true. In many cases, it's just not true. Um, And yet it leads to uh, all these unnecessary surgeries. So that's kind of what we're talking about here. I would perhaps fall into that category. I'm not completely asymptomatic, but I do know I have a slight disc herniation and I'm I have some pain sometimes, but if I do all the things that I know to do, it's very well managed and I effectively don't have pain, but I have access to a lot of things. I'm very lucky and grateful. I can imagine how quickly that can spiral because pain just overtakes your brain, depresses your mood, your motivation. I'm sure you see this. People spiral. So what else can we do? (laughs) Your your case is a case in point, right? Are there times when you have no pain? Does your back sometimes feel good. Sometimes I notice nothing. I feel amazing. Right. So that's, we should talk about a little bit more because those times when you notice nothing, like when you're like in a good yoga groove or like on vacation or on a nice walk or whatever it is, whatever those things are like eating well, doing all the right things. Ironically, it's when I do a lot of strength training that I feel really good. Like lifting heavy, I feel the best. Awesome. Yeah. So we should talk about this even more detail, but let me tell you, if you're feeling great, strength training or otherwise, right? Whatever the reason is, you still have that disc herniation. I hate to tell you, it's there, Yeah. you know? So like that, that should be like, you know, I don't think you have to be like a super smart person to understand that if your back doesn't hurt and you have a disc herniation that's visible, then it's not the disc herniation that's making your back hurt. It's got to be something else. Right. It has to be because mm. the disc herniation is there all the time. If your back doesn't hurt when you're doing strength training, then it ain't the disc that's causing your pain. That's my, that's my story. What well, we could talk about specifically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what are the other reasons for the pain or yeah, let's say so, the signal to the brain that <laughs> signals that there's something wrong? Yeah. Which is the obvious next question, right? So like, you know, if the disc herniation is not what's doing it, uh, then what is it? Right. And, and I, I, I want to be clear here. A disc herniation is not normal, right? It's not good. It's not a great thing, but it's just all it is is a vulnerability, like so many other things. It's it's part of the story, but not the whole story. So, what are the other parts? I, I would I would put I, I'd say there's four other parts, four other main parts. One of them is excessive inflammation, not just inflammation because plain inflammation, but excessive more than there should be given the stimulus. So that's number one. And it's very common because so many people eat badly and, you know, there's all kinds of reasons we can talk more in detail sometime about the reasons for excessive inflammation, but that's number one. Number two is about muscle tension 
and or muscle strength versus flexibility ratios, right? The the biomechanics of musculature and how that fits in. Um, your experience is speaks to this as a as a major factor. When you're doing a lot of strength training, those muscles are strong and supportive, and they're doing a great job of supporting that vulnerable spine. And then that spine feels good. When those muscles are a little bit weaker, that spine's not as stable, and you're more prone probably to muscle spasms to try to stabilize it or actual instability that causes pain. So muscle tension or strength to flexibility ratio imbalances in the musculature adjacent to the problem is number two. Number three is something a lot of people don't know about, and it's called fibrosis. And what fibrosis is, is scar tissue. Fibrin is what scars are made out of. It's a kind of a tangled mess rather than the nice linear fibers of, of, of a muscle or the tissue that it replaces. And fibrin can accumulate at microscopic levels from chronic inflammation or repetitive strain or on macroscopic levels from like old injuries, big scars from old surgeries, old injuries. Part of the reason why people who have damaged a knee or a hip or had a big injury earlier in their life wind up having degenerative changes later. So fibrosis is number three. And then number four is like totally different than any of those. Number four is about the emotions and the stories and the psychology and all of our own personal history and our family history, what we've seen, what we've experienced and how that informs our experience of pain. And many people um, are telling themselves all kinds of stories about what this pain means and what it is and what it's going to do to them. And um, I would say that changing the ending of those stories is a, is, is a big part of the treatment plan for a lot of people too. So those are my four. Yeah. I, oh, I just have wow. to interject because I had a conversation with a PT friend of mine that was like, pain doesn't exist. I was like, okay, we're going we gotta to have to go deeper into this because pain means something. Yeah. But if you think about pain, is pain really harming you? Like what's the worst that could happen in a lot of situations? And if you can reframe your relationship to pain, then the signals may actually change. And that certainly has happened with me. I literally meditated on the, the idea of pain and the pain was reduced. Yeah. So yeah, you get that it. is like, I, I really get it. That's really valuable. And then also the muscular tension. When I stand at my standing desk for too long, I tend to tighten my hamstrings and that immediately hurts my back. Mm. And you know, most people think, oh, a standing desk is really healthy for you, but mm. could be perpetuating an imbalance. So I'm like, the things you listed. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, totally. Right. And the the pain piece is so interesting, right? Like it is, you know, we, we know of phantom limb pain in people who, who are amputees. You've probably heard of that. It's a crazy phenomenon. You know, you lose a leg or lose a foot, but it still, it still hurts that that toe itches or hurts. Like obviously the pain isn't in the, in the, the limb, right? Because those people don't even have a limb and they, so it's in your brain and it's informed. Yeah. By stories that we tell ourselves and most of the pains, especially the orthopedic ones, they're not dangerous. They, they just hurt. You know, it's like, the signal of pain, I think of it like fire, right? If you put your hand too close to a fire, you get pain and that pain initiates a behavior change. It's like, all right, I better move my hand away from this fire because if I don't, things are going to get bad. It's going to burn. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have a problem. And that's what pain is about. But in many cases, these orthopedic or musculoskeletal pains, they're, they're not dangerous. And so a lot of people can meditate on a mantra, something like, um, Something like what I just said, you know, it's not dangerous. It just, it just hurts, you know, and, uh, and that can really, really help people, you know, changing the story that they tell themselves about the pain. Mm, yeah. Like that. Wow. That, okay. The four, this is really going to stick with me that I think this is such an interesting list. Um, and I will say on the emotional piece, I love that you're bringing that in like the mind body connection. I think not enough people are talking about that, especially when it comes to pain, but again, circling back to my back pain, the two worst episodes I had 
was when our grandfather passed away. And then one of my really close friends passed away. Mm-hmm. I mean, like couldn't walk pain. Yeah. And then as the emotional trauma resolved, the back pain started to get better. But again, I could have just had it fused and, you know, whatever. But so I would love to break down the four a little bit more. So the inflammation. So how yeah. does someone know if excessive inflammation is the problem? And then if it is, what do we do about it? Do you start with nutrition? All right, biohackers, I'm not supposed to confess this to you, but screw it. Do you want to hear what my real sleep routine sounds like sometimes? I curl up in bed, lights on, they may be red lights, but they're lights, phone on, sometimes good old Netflix playing on the TV, and you know what I call this little catastrophe cocktail? Well, my nervous system certainly doesn't think it's winding down, and I've earned it, right? Look, we've all been there. It's an endless cycle that just keeps repeating itself. I know sometimes I think, one more thing, one more thing, and then I'll put my phone down. What happens is we wake up with more brain fatigue the next day, which makes us more prone to make poor decisions again on crappy sleep. And it's just like Groundhog Day without the happy ending in Bill Murray. But today, I finally got the happy ending. <laughs> no, kidding. I'm, I'm actually having one of my raddest days ever, and it's all because of buy optimizers. I mean, who else would it be than those guys? Man, they have a great track record of always nailing it. So what do they do? Well, they create a little sleep hygiene ritual that involves a delicious little beverage that will knock you on your bottom with the healthiest non-habit-forming ingredients. You've heard us rave about Magnesium Breakthrough, and it's awesome because we have the same brains and magic behind this one, Sleep Breakthrough. It's just like that. So the reason you're not sleeping is, of course, lack of good sleep hygiene, but also could be nutrient deficiencies in the ingredients that we need to get into deep restorative sleep. If you want to learn more, you can go to sleepbreakthrough.com backslash biohackerbabes and get yourself an education that will change your life. It sure did for us. Trust me, we don't want to put this off any longer. Sleep is our superpower, but a lot of us are doing it really wrong. The real fix is finally here, and you know that we love our sleep, so we would not say that lightly. Go to sleepbreakthrough.com backslash biohackerbabes and use code biohackerbabes10 to get a surprisingly cool free gift too. That's sleepbreakthrough.com backslash biohackerbabes to learn all about these amazing ingredients and formulation and a delicious nighttime cocktail. All right, biohackers, let's get back to the show. Yeah. So like I said on that hierarchy before, excessive, you know, we start wherever is the right place to start. Right. And so for, or okay. you know, meet, meet somebody where they are. And I know a lot of your, your listeners are, are already pretty far along on this route, you know, like already taking good care of themselves and uh, eating well, hopefully whatever that means for them. Um, but yeah, so let, let's talk about excessive inflammation and break it down. First of all, inflammation is a biologic, physiologic necessity, right? We we need it. It's, it's how we respond to infections, how we respond to injuries. You can't just make inflammation go away. Like eradicating inflammation is not the goal. It's just to control it, much like fire, which by the way, inflammation is named after. Inflammo, it means it means to set ablaze in Latin. It's, it's named after fire. And just like fire, right? Like if it's out of control, it's devastating. If it's in control, it's great, you know, cook with it, candle it, dinner, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what we want to do with inflammation. And the way you control inflammation starts like the lowest rung of the ladder with what you eat and what you don't eat, I suppose. But controlling inflammation is about eating minimally processed, you know, 
close to the earth foods that are in their natural form. I don't think we're going to get into a whole detailed dietary analysis, nutrition here, but like an anti-inflammatory diet. I think you and your listeners know what that means. And that's the lowest rung. And that's also the rung where most people get wrong, right? Most people, especially the ones who come and see me, they're not eating right. And they have more inflammation than they should. The, the campfire has escaped the fire pit and it's burning down the campground, you know, and we got to get that diet under control if they're willing or able to do it. Right. So that's the place to start for sure. And then do you see uh, a lot of just curious, you see a lot of leaky gut because once we kind of disrupt that gut lining, most things could be inflammatory, right? We could be eating a healthy diet, but things are just crossing in and out of the gut. Is that a big problem when we're talking about like eating well? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, m- many of the people who haven't eaten well for a long period of time or have had other uh, indiscretions or even problems that, you know, that, that weren't even th- their own doing um, have intestinal permeability issues, which then, yeah, provoke a more aggressive inflammatory response, even to foods that would otherwise be healthy. Right. And so this is probably what explains, you know, how we demonize a new set of foods every so often. There's another author that comes out and now you can't eat nightshades. Now you can't eat gluten and dairy is the problem and on and on and on like that, you know, a never ending list of of inflammatory foods, which for most people aren't inflammatory. It's that, it's that intestinal permeability problem that makes, you know, in many cases, otherwise healthful compounds provocative to people. So yeah, absolutely. And gut repair, um, you know, assessing or diagnosing that intestinal permeability problem and then taking steps to correct it is, is a really important part and probably like maybe the next rung up on, um, on the anti-inflammatory naturopathic protocol. Mm, excellent. And then what about bringing compounds in that would be anti-inflammatory? Or I'm, I'm curious, do you use diagnostic testing to determine if they're, I know it's not a lot of like great cytokine testing, but something just as simple as systemic inflammation, is that helpful? Yeah, totally. I mean, I, yeah, I do, do. I do do testing and, and testing can be useful. I mean, the, it's funny, right? You, you, you say like, you know, there's, te- there's tests for general inflammation, like a, a ESR, it's called a sedimentation rate or a CRP. And these things just check inflammation it, in, in like medical residency. People will say like, what is it? What does an elevated ESR tell you? And, and the answer will be that, that the laboratory is open, right? Like that they, that they did a test. It doesn't mean anything. It just means like, it's like, it could be anywhere. You could have gotten stung by a bee. You could have rheumatoid arthritis and you could have elevated sed rate. So it's not helpful in terms of laser pointing at a diagnosis, but it can be helpful, especially in the diagnosis or the workup of autoimmunity. You're right that like cytokine testing, you, I mean, we can go nuts with like very expensive functional diagnostic laboratory tests. But if those tests are going to lead me down a road to tell a person that they should eat better, that they should fix up their gut, you know, that they should sleep better, they should, you know, do all these foundational things, then I don't think I really need that, that test. So um, for, especially if it's going to cost a patient a lot of money, I'm just going to like stick with the basics and try to convince them that like, I don't need a test. I think, I think we know what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I'm a big fan of using the GI map stool test, but same thing. I'm like, if someone has like all these gut issues and they haven't even done like a basic for our protocol or something like that, then it's like save your $450 or whatever and just yeah. 
Let's just at least try. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally. There's so and, much to try first. And yeah. I'm not down on those tests at all. I'm really, I'm really not. I, do, I, I have noticed it's like an interesting thing over the course of my career, which is, you know, decades long now that like I was much more enthusiastic about functional or integrative laboratory testing earlier in my career where I felt like I had some hints in my mind. And then I used those laboratory tests to validate my, um, my concerns or to, you know, to, to evaluate them. And then also to convince the patient that what I, what I wanted them to do was, was right based on what we saw on this piece of paper. And then as time went on, I found like with more experience in clinical practice, it was just like, I don't, I don't feel like I need to spend your money on this. I already know what to tell you what to do. You know, in many cases, obviously I ordered lots of labs and imaging, but like really to refine, you know? Um, And, uh, and so, yeah, those tests certainly can be useful. I think a lot of times they're overused because the outcome is eat better, move more, sleep better, you know, that kind of thing. So um, yeah. So if, if, if a test can really make like a meaningful needle move or like help me decide, am I going to go this way or am I going to go this way? That's a test I want to, I want to see. Right. Yeah. Right. I think some clients just have the money and they're like, I want to do everything. <laughs> totally. And that's great. Or that, uh, people that need evidence. They're like, you know, they're a disbeliever until. Right. Gluten's fine until I show them their anti-gliadin IGA, they're like, oh, fine. All and right. that's a perfectly appropriate <laughs> use of those kinds of tests is to convince yes. somebody like, hey, look on the paper. It says it right here. Absolutely. Some people just won't believe it until they see it uh, printed that way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So what is, what different. are your favorite compounds for inflammation? It's a good question. So, um, you know, and I don't want to do a sales pitch here, but I've been, I've been after this for a long time. Right. And so like, there's been many years of trial and error in my office dealing with people trying to figure out like, what's the solution to treat, like to manage that ex- excessive inflammation, that muscle tension, that fibrosis that leads so many people to pain. And so I'll, I'll tell you what I've, what I've hit on, you know, as the, as the, 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 the recipe, the secret sauce, so to speak. And I'll go, kind of go through the list of my top ingredients. Number one is something that I know is familiar to you and probably to a lot of your listeners, which is curcumin, the most bioactive compound inside of turmeric. Turmeric only contains about 2% curcumin. So curcumin's more, you know, it's very potent anti-inflammatory, but it needs to be concentrated um, to really get that kind of, um, I almost said pharmaceutical effect, but that really powerful effect, right? Uh, And so I'm a big fan of high potency curcumin. I use a proprietary extract called BCM95 curcumin, which is my favorite. It's got a lot of clinical studies on it um, and it just works great. So that, that, that I'd put that at number one, number two, is Boswellia. Um, Boswellia serrata is, is, is the gum resin from the, from, from a tree uh, that is commonly known as frankincense. And it also has potent anti-inflammatory activities. And even some studies with electron microscopy have sort of resurfacing, if you will, filling in the pits and gaps um, and smoothing out the surfaces, cartilaginous surfaces and joints. So Boswellia or frankincense is number two. Should I keep going? Yeah. Yeah. Love All right. Love um, number three is is bromelain. Bromelain is a digestive enzyme, actually a proteolytic enzyme. Oh, here's an interesting thing about bromelain. It's it's an enzyme that comes from pineapple. It's concentrated in the core and in the stem of pineapple, and um, it's also the active ingredient in meat tenderizer. So if you ever buy meat and you, have, you it's tough and you get like from the store like a little little can of meat tenderizer, you know, from McCormick Company or whatever. 
meat tenderizer is bromelain. It's that's what it is. And when you huh. sprinkle that meat tenderizer on your steak, that's too tough or whatever, it'll, it'll break up the fibrin. It's fibrinolytic. It breaks up fibrin. And it turns out that you can eat bromelain, put it in your mouth in a capsule or even eat pineapple and it will get absorbed intact into your bloodstream and it will exert it's fibrinolytic, it's proteolytic fibrin breaking uh, activity in your body. So that's why I use bromelain to, for that fiber, for that fibrin part. That's, um, yeah. I think we're on number three. That's I think three. Human. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. Go ahead, Renee. Yeah, yeah, I was first. just going to say, I know um, Ben Greenfield, he's put out like some recipes and cookbooks and stuff, and he will sprinkle proteolytic enzymes on his steak. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing that, like he'll just open up the capsule, but that's funny that you can just buy that. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Meat tenderizers. Meat tenderizers way right. cheaper. Yeah. Meat tender- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm curious about the uh the bromelain. So this is interesting. I was a Broadway performer for a while and the Broadway community bromelain really kind of caught fire. That's an interesting uh word that I just used. Yeah. For inflammation for um the vocal passages. Mm. So if there was inflammation from singing, you know, two shows a day could be quite demanding. Yeah. I wasn't really sure about the the mechanism of action. I didn't know it worked on the fiber. And I wonder if that's actually doing what people were thinking it was doing. Yeah, that's interesting, you know, and I, I've had a number of um a number of people have come to me over the years with that with that problem, right? Like it's like preachers or singers, you know, that kind of thing. And bromelain is it's certainly on the list of things I would have considered. I never heard of that story that it caught fire like that on Broadway. Um, it, you know, it has anti-inflammatory properties as well, right? So it's not just a proteolytic enzyme. Um, it's not exactly clear the mechanism by which uh, bromelain decreases inflammation or excessive inflammation, but it definitely does. And I wonder, you know, the the thing you hear about with a lot of performers, you know, whether it's Morgan Wallen recently or Adele back in the day, like they get vocal cord polyps, those vocal cords are really working hard. And I would, I'm not an ENT, but I would be surprised if there's not a fibrin accumulation in those Broadway performers, those singers who are overusing their vocal cords, because it's a, you know, it's a lot of vibration, a lot of activity there, inflammation, fibrosis. And I bet I, I would be surprised. I bet bromelain works in that situation. I bet it's, I bet it caught fire. Yeah, for everyone a was using it. They yeah. kept doing it. I assumed it was yeah. probably a little more than placebo, but yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that is cool. Yeah, so we got three so now. We did three. Four? Yeah, uh, the other, the other, the next one, number four, I suppose, um, is a, is an interesting bioflavonoid compound called quercetin, which is in found in all sorts of different foods. It's in onions. It's in apples. It's a, it's a it's a bioflavonoid compound that also has a broad spectrum anti-inflammatory activity. It, it targets many of those different cytokines. You mentioned those earlier. And there's one in particular I want to come back to called IL-6 in a minute. But um, quercetin g- goes that's after a, a whole one. bunch of... <laughs> yeah, that's a famous one. It, it goes after a bunch of those as well and um, is a powerful antioxidant and and, uh, and seems to be just kind of like something that brings this formula together um, in a way that uh, that just makes the, 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 the total bigger than the sum of its parts. So quercetin is number four, I think we were on. Um, number five, I would put magnesium on the list and that's to address the muscle tension piece, right? So, so many people are walking around magnesium deficient or insufficient. And I know you've talked about that before. You're well acquainted with it. It's a critical mineral for so many things, especially muscle tone. And um, there's lots of people who have an injury, maybe a little car accident or a little something. And also part of the reason why you mentioned um, dur- during those stressful times when your back got bad, Stress 
depletes magnesium. Stress uses up more magnesium because it's so heavily involved in the biochemistry of the stress response that you have more demand for magnesium when you're under stressful circumstances. And if you're already kind of teetering and you're not quite sufficient with magnesium, put a heavy stress on you, the magnesium gets depleted and your muscles whoop, lock up tight like that. Mm. And then your back hurts. Right. So Makes like so that, much sense. Ah, yeah, so, I wish I had known that back then. Yeah, you should have called magnesium. me. Magnesium. <laughs> um, so uh yeah. So magnesium. Do you think the topical magnesium for specifically back pain and doing an oral supplement as well? I'm not sure if you're using topical at all or your thoughts on it. Um, I have you so there's a few studies that have 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 demonstrated that topical magnesium can get absorbed um and uh and and so increase levels in the bloodstream after topical administration. They're limited studies, right? So I'm not super, super convinced of the value and I haven't seen it pay off as much as oral magnesium does. So usually what I'm talking about here is oral oral magnesium, you know, administered as a supplement. Right. And specific type of magnesium? Do you use like glycinate or yeah, we're getting into it. Um, so I like mag citrate is my usually my first choice. Um, and okay. this is for the general population. We're, we, we, I got to put a caveat here. This is in the general population. I like magnesium citrate. It's cheap. It's well absorbed. It's well tolerated by most people. And so I, it's my first choice. Um, there are other choices. You mentioned glycinate, which is a great choice for people who don't tolerate citrate um, because it can be a little bit hard on the GI tract. It loosens the stool. It's a, it has a laxative effect, which many people in the general population actually need and appreciate, right? They're, they're constipated. Right. And so mag, a little mag citrate not only helps their back muscles relax, but also helps them poop better. And so that that's why I pick citrate for the general population. Yeah. If a person's already tending towards loose stool, uh, you know, then glycinate might be a better choice. Mm-hmm. Great. Excellent. Sense. All right. We got five. Is that your top five? Does the list yeah. go on? Yeah, I got one more. And the one okay. more is a little bit controversial sometimes. I know biohacker types, maybe you're going to push on me about this one, but the last one is piperine, which is a black pepper extract. And that one is really interesting because it uh, enhances the absorption of everything else I just mentioned. The studies have mostly been done on curcumin uh, and piperine enhances the absorption of curcumin by orders of magnitude. It's like 2000% better absorption. Curcumin's not super well absorbed. So getting it into the, to the person's really important and piperine really, really helps that. Um, and it also helps the absorption of other things as well. So I often uh, include, and in, in the formula that I've made, you know, that, that, that has all these ingredients, there's a little bit of piperine in there as well. And I, I find that for the vast majority of people, the benefits outweigh the risks. And there are the risks. I, I, I say risks. Piperine doesn't really have a lot of risks. Um, for some people, it irritates their stomach. Um, and so those people shouldn't, shouldn't use it. Um, but I think that the benefits outweigh the risks for the, for the general population. Is that the biohacker backlash? I We like piperine. I wasn't sure what you were going to say. Um, no. Well, the there's I've had a few backlash lashes about it. Yeah. Like oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. People get, yeah. people get, they think it like makes intestinal permeability worse. It creates GI inflammation. Um, some people have told me that they don't like it because it's in the nightshade family, which it's not, um, you know, oh. it's, it's not a, it's not a Solanaceae family plant. It's in a different, it's a, it's a different genus. Um, so yeah, you know, that's, I don't know. There's probably a biohacker out there somewhere that said something bad about, about piperine and, um, and then, you know, the internet took over. Um, so I think it's good That's stuff. That's exactly what happened. I, I know, <laughs> I remember a specific biohacker that said, 
we no longer need this with our curcumin. This is fake news. And then it yeah. was just like, boom, 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 all over social media. Yeah. Like we were talking and about. And usually, usually what it is, right, is like someone saying, we no longer need this because we have this new thing that's lipolized or nanonized or whatever, and it's better. And so they're, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's like. What's the meeting. agenda here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> is this marketing or is this medicine, you know? And, and listen, like, I'm a fan of both, you know, as long as it's done with integrity. That sounds like a podcast. Is it marketing or is it medicine? Sounds like a, you could start a podcast Ooh. there. <laughs> we could start with making that the title of this one. Because we did talk about that before we hit record in our green room, you know, behind the scenes about how things just overnight can be these internet sensations. And then suddenly, you know, the pop the the public kind of gets distracted or bored or finds something else to talk about. And then there's a big uproar about something else. Totally. How do we sort through all of this kind of madness and studies that are released when, you know, a lot of people will read titles of the papers, but they won't actually read the paper? Yeah, it happens all the time. I mean, it, it seems like once a week there's another miracle compound. Um, and then there's also some other demonic compound that will kill you. Right. And like, like here we are now. Uh, and I think the, the, the fervor is quieting down, but berberine was like a, a, you know, the darling, um, recently because it's, 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 uh, and it's a, a great compound berberine comes from these these uh berberous family plants and it's really great for blood sugar control and can be useful in in helping people manage lipids very modestly useful for weight loss but it got it got tagged on tiktok as nature's ozempic and then just blew up right berberine's flying off the shelves you know there's a massive you know media outcry about this i'm getting calls for interviews from major media outlets about it and 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 usually just trying to say it's again, this balance thing. You were talking about Libra, maybe, you know, it's like we were talking about unnecessary surgery and surgery can be amazing. And there's both can be true. So it with something like berberine or another one that got popular recently, taurine, it's like, it can be great stuff. It can be very useful in clinical practice for people, but it can also not be a fountain of youth. Like not everything has to be like absolutely useless or a total miracle. There is an in-between there. And many of these compounds that get headlines, viral TikToks or whatever about them um, are the, the truth lies inside of the middle. It's not a fountain of youth, nor is it a, a waste of money, you know? Um, and that's what, I, that's basically what my career has become is trying to kind of, uh, kind of try to navigate that line there in the middle. Mm. Yeah, deciphering it all. It, it, but people don't like the people. People are bored of the middle, right? They, that's not what that's not what excites people, right? People like the edges, you know. That's where the yeah. stuff is, you know. Whether it's in politics or anywhere, it's like they like the, those those outliers is, is what really is intriguing. And when you tell people to stay balanced, sleep well, eat well, you know, move your body, they're just like, ah, that's boring. boring. <laughs> that sounds like a dopamine problem. Maybe exactly. there's something else going on. <laughs> yeah, totally. Mm. that's that's very true well circling back to like the anti-inflammatory side of things i think like someone with back pain on average would just take an aspirin or take an ibuprofen Mm -hmm. but so again here's that side yes those can be helpful when we're like in excruciating pain we have to get through a day but then on the other hand we have all these other amazing anti-inflammatory things we can do that we talked about so how do we get people off of the the hard stuff, I would say, mm. like the hard gr- drugs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a great question. I, I I think you've learned now. I'm a fan of metaphors, um, and so the metaphor that I use when people ask me this, and this this applies to the hard drugs for musculoskeletal pain, or really 
in in many cases, other types of medicines that people use and they want to switch over to a more natural approach. My metaphor is that of a three-legged stool um, or maybe a tripod in our world now. You know, I got my camera set up on a tripod. You probably got a couple of tripods around there too, right? Tripod, three legs, right? If you take one of those legs away, that thing's going to fall over, right? And so right now, a person who's using whatever drug it is to manage their back pain or manage their shoulder, their hip, whatever, that that drug is one of the legs of their tripod, right? And they need it because they're it's it's holding them up. So we can't just take it away because if we take it away, a two-legged tripod doesn't work. And so what I do is I put in all kinds of other legs, right? Like let's just let's just add to the tripod. Let's add BCM95 curcumin. Let's add some good movement. Let's add some strength training. Let's add some dietary changes, lifestyle modifications, get a new mattress, whatever, all kinds of different legs, right? We're, we got fourth leg, fifth leg, sixth leg, 10 legs, right? And then once that thing is stable and we're, we're saying, all right, now your back's feeling pretty good, still on the whatever it is that you're taking that you're trying to avoid. Now let's look at this multipod that has many legs in there. It's much more stable and supportive. And we can now take that leg that you want to, you want to get rid of. We can start to wiggle it out, right? We can take it off slowly. It depends on the drug. There's some nuance here, but we pull that leg out and see if all that other stuff that we put in there to stabilize, it keeps it, keeps it upright. So that's, that's the way I do it. And many of the things that we talked about today are, are the legs of that new multi-legged tripod. That's how I do it. I love that metaphor. I love it so much. Are there any contraindications to mixing these things? If inherently then the natural compounds are more uh, supporting a healthy inflammatory cycle, whereas something like an NSAID is kind of cutting the cycle off. Yeah. Great question. And I'll, I'll do my best to answer it in like a general way. Uh, The answer is yes. Like natural compounds, um, especially the one, like the ones that we talked about, you know, there's, there's no side effects to changing your mattress or like, you know, you can, you can exercise, you can go for a walk, you can eat better. Um, but when you're starting to get into the zone of powerful herbal medicines, just because they're natural doesn't mean they're completely without risk. And, and, um, if a person is on pharmaceutical medications, especially medications that thin the blood, that's a thing that you really want to talk to someone who knows what they're doing about. And that would be a naturopathic doctor, even a conventional medical doctor, hopefully has access to a database where they can cross-check what you're taking or what you intend to take in the herbal medicine world with uh, whatever pharmaceuticals you might be on to make sure that that's not a problem. And and blood thinning or anticoagulant drugs are are notorious there. But there are some substances, certain drugs that people take. And again, it's too big of a conversation for now because it's all these individual drugs. There's hundreds of them um, do need to be checked. Every now and then we run into a thing where somebody's taking a drug that's processed by the liver, certain pathway in the liver, and these herbs also go through that same pathway. And that can cause a bit of a traffic jam, if you will, and 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 change the, the metabolism or the breakdown of both the drug and the herb, which can make a drug either maybe more potent or powerful or less potent or powerful. And so those are the sorts of things that we need to be careful with. And so it's it's mostly about drug interactions and, and people should talk to their doctor, talk to their pharmacist, or get a naturopathic doctor on their team who knows about this sort of stuff if they're on drugs and they want to add some of these compounds in. Thank you for yes. sharing that. You're welcome. Very important disclaimer. I'm just curious, are you taking new patients right now? Should have asked you no, that. No. I'm okay. Not, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not personally. Yeah. I'm I'm at okay. a point in my career where I just can't uh yeah, I'm I'm not personally. My office is. Um I, there's a bunch of other doctors uh, in my office that are uh that have we're all cut from the same cloth. And um so there are uh new patient appointments available, but just not with me at this at this point in my career. And I'm I'm um okay. I'm 
proud, but also sad to say that. Yeah. We're proud of you too, but you just, hey, our audience just went, oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're educating a lot of people. I think that that is a very important role to play as well. So thanks. Yeah. Yeah. That's been a big transition, right. Is like, is like taking the advice and the guidance that I've given to patients over so many years and trying to translate that into, you know, in, you know, out there into the world at a, at, a, at a different scale outside of the walls of my office. And that's, that's kind of the career path that I'm on right now. And that's been great and productive as well. Very different, but, but, yeah. but wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Well, this has been such a fun conversation. We could talk to you all day, but uh, we want to respect your time. We would love to close with one final piece of advice, something you could share with our audience that they could start doing like right here today to optimize their health. I love it. Yeah, let's do it. So I mentioned, and we I teased a little bit about IL-6. It was a cytokine. Oh, it's an inflammatory yeah, I forgot. Cytokine. We're going to circle yeah. back. <laughs> so we're circling back, but you you just, you led me right there, right? So it's perfect. Um, IL-6 is an inflammatory cytokine. And there was some research that came out of the University of California at Berkeley a few years ago. That's maybe one of my favorite all-time research papers. And and what it showed, well, let me, let me put, put it this way. It's long been known that positive emotions are correlated with good health and negative emotions are correlated with bad health, right? So anger, envy, jealousy, sadness, those are correlated with bad, you know, poor health outcomes and positive emotions, things like happiness and love and contentment and joy, those are are associated with positive health outcomes. So the question in this study was, which of the positive emotions is most strongly correlated with reduced levels of inflammation? Which of the positive emotions is the most anti-inflammatory? And it turns out that the answer by looking at IL-6 levels is awe, A-W-E, awe. Finding awe out there in the world, right? Technology, nature, your children, your family, whatever it is, your food, you know, you slice open an orange and you go, wow, it's so beautiful. It's just awesome the way it's segmented like that. Finding awe and people who find awe more regularly have lower levels of IL-6 and lower levels of corresponding inflammation. So you ask me for a tip or advice, just go find something awesome. Go out there in your world, in your house, in your backyard, within your pet, in your family, and find something awesome and just lean into that. And that is my number one tip right there. Oh, this is crazy. That's- just yesterday, I put a book called Awe in my Amazon cart, and now <laughs> got to get it. Yeah. <laughs> What's the you book? You should have bought it. Yeah. It was, <laughs> well, it it's in the cart. It, it'll... Oh, I should. I got to hit send. I got to hit confirm. I put it. Um, I will tell you later who the author is, but I put it in. I'm a microdosing coach. And so people were talking about it and kind of in my cohort about supporting, actually supporting inflammation through ah, exactly what you just said. Love it. Love it. Uh, Great stuff. It, but I'll report back. All right. Great. Well, this has been awesome. Hey, we just did it. <laughs> I can feel my inflammation going down right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I'm actually, sometimes I feel guilty of using the words awesome and amazing too much, but I'm just going to go with it. Yeah, lean in. Yeah, lean in. It's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, Dr. Josh, thank you so much for spending your time with us. This has been so much fun and educational too. So thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad. Thank you for having me. Can you tell our audience where they can find more of you? Sure. Yeah. Um, I I um, am a co-founder and the medical director at a company called Up Wellness, which is where most of my time is these days. And that's at uh, upwellness.com. Pretty straightforward. Um, and then I'm also doing a lot on social media these days. So I'm at 
dr josh levitt on instagram and on tiktok of all places i never would have thought i was going to be doing that when i was in medical school uh and on the new meta product threads i'm over there too so at ah. dr josh levitt on any of the social media platforms and i'd love to see you and interact with you there perfect Great. all right well all thank right. you so much for joining us today this is oh i can't say it enough it was awesome thank you for your time <laughs> thank you And thanks to everyone for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Love this episode of the Biohacker Babes podcast? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly appreciate your support. Until then, happy biohacking. This podcast offers health, fitness, and nutritional information and is designed for educational purposes only. You should not rely on this information as a substitute for, nor does it replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have any concerns or questions about your health, you should always consult with a physician or other healthcare professional.